We're going to be looking at a passage from Colossians 3 this morning. The pastor of uh, Reality San Francisco, which is yet to start, is going to be starting on January 10th uh, of next year. Yeah, praise the Lord. Is teaching at our Carpinteria campus this morning, and uh, they're half an hour ahead of us. So he's partway into the sermon. We're teaching the same sermon. We spent the week studying together. And so Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be talking about relational holiness. Relational holiness. You probably heard of positional holiness. You probably heard of personal holiness. But what is relational holiness? That's what we're going to try to discover this morning. Let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for your wonderful word. Your authoritative, infallible, inerrant, living, active, awesome word. And we love your word because it reveals to us who you are. That's why we love it. It's not about the book. It's about Jesus. Jesus, we're here gathered around you today. We're here to celebrate you, to enjoy you, to give you praise and honor, to hear from you, to respond to you. And so we ask that Jesus, if you haven't already captured every heart in this place, that you would. That we would be found in you. That you'd be our reason and our cause for being here and for living. And that you'd speak to us today in such a way that it would transform us. Thank you as as the Holy Spirit speaks through the Holy Word. We are transformed as God's holy people. And so speak to us now about relational holiness. Change our relationships, Lord, with one another and with the world around us to better reflect Jesus. We ask you to accomplish this in us by your power and for your glory. And we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So relational holiness, what does that mean? Well, before we define it, here's the premise that we're working from, okay? If Jesus is the founder and the owner and the center of the church, which is what we talked about last week, if Jesus is the founder and the owner and the center of the church, then it follows that the church ought to look like him. You get what I'm saying? That's the premise that we're going to work from this morning. If Jesus is the founder, owner, center of the church, then it follows that the church ought to look like him. The church ought to resemble him when we are the church gathered, Sundays and other times, and when we are the church scattered, Mondays and all the other times. The church ought to look like Jesus, whether we are gathered or scattered. Now, there's a couple primary metaphors in the New Testament concerning the church and Christ that help us to begin to think about this. One of those metaphors is that the church is the bride of Christ. You've probably heard that one. We're the bride of Christ. We're married to Christ, so to speak. In the Bible, marriage is, is an identity thing to a large degree. In, in other words, it says in Genesis, the man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there's a new and singular identity that happens in the biblical concept of marriage. The two shall become one. And what God puts together, let no man tear asunder. So there's a shared identity in marriage. So when we are called in the New Testament as a church, the bride of Christ, it's an identity issue. We are identified with him. And we are to be like him. 
Have you ever known a couple that they've been together for so long that they start to think alike and talk alike and react alike and sometimes they dress alike and that gets a little funny? But you, have you ever noticed how people that have been together for a long time start to kind of look like each other? They start to be like each other. Okay, it's an identity thing, the bride of Christ. We need to start to be like Jesus. Now, another primary metaphor in the New Testament is that we are the body of Christ. Okay, Christ is the head, the church is the body. We're the body of Christ. Again, it's a shared identity thing. Usually a head and a body go together, right? There's a shared identity, hopefully, unless you lost your mind. There's a, there, there's a oneness, there's a togetherness. And have you ever seen... Uh, a head that didn't match the body, a body that didn't match the head. That's an awkward thing. Some bodybuilders are like that because <laughs> they build their body and they get super big, but you can't really work out the head. You can't do like head presses or whatever, like, ooh, ooh, like face push-ups. You know what I mean? So the body's and the head is small. That's weird looking. Bodybuilders are kind of like that. Some normal people are like that. For example, look at this picture. Okay, that's me in the middle. The only thing more shocking than the shirt I'm wearing is my undersized head. Someone posted this on Facebook, I about died. This has not been altered. Look at my feet in relation to my head. It is so unbelievable. That is an example of a head and a body that don't match. The body is ginormous and the head is barely there. It's just not right, it's disgusting. The church should look like Jesus. The body ought to match the head. We're supposed to represent Jesus to the world. We're supposed to be ambassadors. We're supposed to be redeemed image bearers of who Christ is. Do you remember in the book of Acts, there comes a time in chapter 11 when the people that followed Jesus were first called something, a brand new name. Do you remember what that name was? Christians. It was while they were in the city of Antioch, there they were first called Christians, little Christs, Christians. And it wasn't a self-given title, it was an earned title. It was as culture observed them, they judged them to be like Christ. And so they called them Christians, Christians. And this is exactly what Scripture beckons us, God's redeemed people, to do and to be. We're called to be like Jesus. Ephesians 5 says we're to be imitators of God. Romans 13 says we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 says we're to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is who we're supposed to be. We're to be a people that are like Jesus. What we often find is what I call the difficulty of disparity. The difficulty of disparity. Disparity means a great difference. 
And too often, there is a great difference between what Jesus looks like and what his church looks like. The body's not going with the head. The difficulty of disparity, a great difference between what we look like and what Jesus looks like. And this great difference causes a great difficulty because we don't treat each other like Christ. We don't act like Christ toward one another. And because we don't act like Christ toward the world, we then have this great difficulty of a church that is lacking in unity and in love and harmony and understanding and a world that isn't getting understanding Christ because of the great disparity, the the irreconcilable difference between those who call themselves Christians and Jesus Christ himself. The church is supposed to look like Jesus. And what we want to do here is we want to move from disparity to similarity. They're antonyms. We want to move from disparity, great difference, to similarity, much in common. So we ask ourselves then, what does it look like to look like Jesus? What does it look like to look like Jesus? And there's a ton that we could talk about. That's, that's a huge topic. But the passage before us right now helps us to begin to think about it in a unique way. Colossians chapter 3, starting reading in verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just As the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Okay, there's a lot in that passage. But what this passage helps us to do is begin to think about relational holiness Now would be a good time to define that. What is relational holiness? Here's the definition that we're working with. It is how we relate to the world and do relationships like a holy God, as the people of God. Relational holiness is how we relate to the world and do relationships like a holy God, as the people of God. In other words, relational holiness is being more like Jesus in all of our relationships. And the text kind of brings up three things about relational holiness. It kind of shows us the motivation, the practice, and the power. Did you see the motivation for relational holiness? It's in verse 12. It says, So, as those who have been chosen of God Holy and beloved. Holy and beloved. I want us to grab on to that phrase. We, having been chosen by God, are holy and beloved. This is speaking about us. This is speaking about Christians. Holy and beloved. Beloved means much loved. 
Here's what we need to get about our identity as Christians, as holy and beloved. We need to understand this. We are not loved much because we are valuable. We are valuable because we are loved much. Understand that? We are not called the beloved of God because we have some sort of inherent value. We become valuable because we are called the beloved of God. The difference is everything. It's the same with the concept of being chosen and holy now. We are not chosen by God because we're holy. We are holy because we've been chosen by God. It's all a work of God. It all has to do with who Christ is, not who we are. That's a thrust of Christianity. It has to do with who Christ is, not who we are. Now, the holiness that's referred to here, we're called holy. This identity is holy. This is referring to something called positional holiness. Right? We're thinking about relational holiness, but we've got to get positional holiness first. Holiness is just carrying the idea for us here of those who are set apart. We're set apart to God, by God, to God, and for God. That's what it means to be holy. Set apart by God, to God, and for God. And how this haps- happens is through the work of God. You see, on the cross, Jesus becomes sin for us that we might be made holy in him. On the cross, he takes our place, dies a substitutionary death in our place, deals with our sin, and not just sin in action, sin in identity, deals with our identity, that core identity that we have without Christ as sinner takes on that identity that we might take on a new identity, being made holy and righteous in Him. We are given His righteousness. He takes our sin and He gives us His rightness, His set-apartness, His holiness. And so positionally, when we come to Jesus Christ through the cross now, we are set apart by God, to God, and for God positional holiness. Now our verse says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And the intriguing thing is here is why would you have to tell a holy person to be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient? Wouldn't those things sort of, at least in a popular sense, begin to define someone who's holy? What's going on here is this concept. Much of the Christian life is trying to bring the practical up to speed with the positional. Positionally, because of who Christ is and what he's done, we are set apart by God, to God, and for God. We're made holy. Practically now, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and our cooperation, we need to act that way. So much of the Christian life is being the practical, bringing the practical in line with the positional practical behavior that is the outflow of a positional reality. I've been made holy by Jesus, so I'm going to act holy for Jesus. 
We are holy in Christ, so we need to be holy in the world. And that then is the motivation. The motivation is the cross. The motivation is what Christ has done. Because we are made holy by the cross, we are to live in holy relationships with the world. Don't miss this. This is huge. Because we're made holy by the cross, we are to live in holy relationships with the world. Here's the deal. Everything that is good in the Christian life is rooted in, as I said, who Christ is and what he has done. I want you to see how this changes everything. When we get this, it really changes everything. What this means is that we are now freed to live lives that are compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forgiving, and loving. We're now freed to live this sort of existence because our identity is secure and complete and wrapped up in Jesus. Remember? The bride, the body, one identity. Our identity is new and secure and wrapped up in who Jesus is. And we're free to be compassionate and self-sacrificial and patient because he loves us and we're already accepted. Therefore, when Christians go out into the world and the world rejects us and our attempts to represent Jesus, it's okay. Because we aren't doing it to be accepted. We've already been accepted by God. And so the motivation becomes our security in Christ. So if we're compassionate and it's not returned, it's okay because of who Christ is. When we're loving and it's not reciprocated, that's okay because we're loved by Christ. When we're nice and they're mean in return, that's okay because Jesus has accepted us. And so we work from that place. The motivation is who Christ is and our identity in him. When we're generous with the world and it's not returned, that's okay because we've already been freely given all things through Christ Jesus. You see, and everything's okay there. And that frees us to be relationally holy here. So then the practice, what does it practically look like to be relationally holy? Well, I understand this. Normally when we talk about holiness, we kind of go to personal holiness. We kind of, in our minds as Christians, go to those things that we don't do. That's normally where we go when we're talking about practical holiness. We normally go to like, you know, I don't cuss or I don't smoke or I don't drink too much or I don't look at pornography or I don't have sex outside of marriage or, or whatever it might be. And those are sort of the go-to things when we're thinking about holiness. Things that we don't do. And that works that can't be the end of the story. We can, as God's people, only be defined by what we don't do. And this passage isn't talking about what we don't do. It's talking about what we do do. The idea of holiness works with what we don't do. That's a component of it. But for now, we need to believe, we need to, excuse me, leave behind the thou shalt nots and get into the thou shalt bees. And there's a whole world of difference. And they're right there in the text. It says to put on. Okay? To be this. 
to be identified with, to put on, to practice a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And again, we are to be these things because we are Christians, because this is who Jesus is. Did you read it with that lens? You should always read the Bible with the lens of Jesus. It just works so good. I mean, that's a perfect description of who Jesus is. He's compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient. And so then that frees us to be that because of the identity issue, the body and the bride. Now, Jesus was this way even to the worst of people, the so-called worst of people in that society in the first century. Jesus was compassionate to the marginalized. In that society, you could identify the lepers as a marginalized subculture. Once it was found out that they had leprosy, they were never touched by anybody again. They had to remove themselves from religious life, social life, relational life, intimate life. They had to remove themselves from that completely. They would never experience the touch of their husband or wife again. They would never hold their kids in their arms again. They would never link arms with another Jew in the temple in Jerusalem and dance and sing unto the Lord again. They were utterly separated and marginalized because of something that had happened to them. Jesus was compassionate. It says over and over in the Gospels that he saw people like this and he had compassion on them. The Latin is to suffer with. He felt their pain. Jesus was kind to the ostracized. The tax gatherers were the the traitors in that first century Jewish society. But Jesus ate with them. Sexually broken, just like in our culture, we're all over the place. Jesus would sit with them. Needy children could be heard calling out in the streets, and Jesus bid them to come to him. He was humble, amazingly, toward prideful and rebellious humanity. Humanity who was wounded in their rebellion. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said about Jesus that a bruised reed he wouldn't break and a faintly burning wick he wouldn't quench. When we're wounded in our transgressions, when we're bruised and broken in our rebellion, he's humble, kind, compassionate. Jesus was gentle with great failures. I mean, Peter denied him three times, called down curses, said the equivalent of, may God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus. Jesus was gentle with great failures. When he restored Peter, he sat on the beach at the Sea of Galilee and made breakfast for him and his friends. Jesus was patient with those struggling with spiritual questions. Nicodemus came to him in the middle of the night. So I don't get this whole thing. Jesus says, you've got to be born again. He said, I don't, I don't understand that. How do you go back into your mother's womb? He says, it's not a physical birth. It's a spiritual birth. I'm telling you, you have to be born again or you will not see the kingdom of God. And even though he was supposed to be a religious leader, he wasn't quite getting it. And Jesus was patient with him. You see, this is who Christ is and this is who we're supposed to be. This is relational 
holiness. All these things, all these ways that Jesus relates to, connects with, interacts with, participates in people and culture and society around him. That is relational holiness. Being relationally set apart, relationally distinct for, to God. Jesus was so set apart, so relationally holy, that they didn't know what to do with him. He was the Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He was holy, innocent, and undefiled. But he hung out with drunkards and tax collectors and prostitutes. They called him a wine-bibber and the friends of sinners, and they didn't mean that as a complimentary way. But you see, Jesus never compromised his personal holiness in being relationally holy. He hung out with them. He connected with them. He wasn't quite like them. And yet Jesus was so personally engaged in the lives of broken people that the religious people came to him and said, if you only knew who was touching you. They were so disgusted by the company that Christ kept. They would say of women that he was dining with, hanging out with, if you only knew who was touching you. And yet he was so personally holy that the one that ordered his death said, I don't find any fault in him. And so in that culture, the extreme conservatives didn't know how to handle him. The extreme liberals were intrigued by him. Can you imagine if the church was like him? If the church was known for being both merciful and compassionate and socially just and also personally holy. If we were relationally holy and personal holy, for example, if we fed in our cities 100% of the hungry and yet we had a 0% divorce rate, If we stopped sex trafficking worldwide and we stopped having sex outside of marriage. If we not only preached Jesus, but we lived like Jesus. Everything would be different. Jesus was so set apart, they didn't know what to do with him. In his book, The Living Church, John Stott, I recommend the book, John Stott talks about the double identity of the church, that we are both called out of the world to worship God and sent back into the world to witness and to serve. We have a double identity. We are both called out and sent in. And he says this, quote, Mission arises from the biblical doctrine of the church in the world. If we are not the church, the holy and distinct people of God, we have nothing to say because we are compromised. If, on the other hand, we are not in the world, deeply involved in its life and suffering, we have no one to serve because we are insulated. 
Our calling is to be holy and worldly at the same time. Without this balanced biblical ecclesiology or understanding of the church, we will never recover or fulfill our mission. And the way that we are holy and worldly is to be relationally holy like Jesus was. Yes, we need to be set apart in behavior, but we also need to be sent out in relationships. And so when we talk about being holy like Jesus, we can't equate holiness with separatists. Rather, we mean doing relationships like God does relationships. Not separating ourselves from the world, but engaging in the brokenness of the world. We are to take our holy and beloved selves and put ourselves right in the midst of the concentration of sinners and rebels. Practicing compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And then as verse 13 says, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. This is a big one, forgiveness. If anybody on the face of the earth should get forgiveness right, it ought to be us. It ought to be the church. It ought to be Christians. Because we have been forgiven. Forgiveness is a huge part of relational holiness. And the Bible is very specific about the standard of forgiveness. It's not ambiguous. It doesn't kind of say, oh yes, you should forgive and you should love. It's very specific as to how we should forgive, the degree to which we should forgive. It says in the text, just as the Lord forgave you. It's an incredibly high standard, but it is the standard. We are to forgive everyone else. No matter how close, no matter how far. The way we have been forgiven. This is being relationally holy. Forgiving like Jesus does. How did Jesus forgive us? Well, he forgave us totally, right? He doesn't reserve a little ammo to hang over our heads at the opportune moment. He forgave us totally, undeservedly. We didn't deserve the forgiveness, and yet he forgives us. He, he forgave us in the face of hostility. He forgave us being wronged while he was right. He was totally wronged, even though he was totally right. And so then we, I, lose the right now as a Christian to say, oh, I just can't forgive them. They betrayed me totally. But I betrayed Jesus. The Christian then loses the right to say, but they hurt me so bad. They wronged me and they're just plain wrong. But the cross was an injustice in every way. He was totally right and he was totally wronged. The Christian then loses the right to think and to say, well, they don't deserve it and they haven't asked for forgiveness. 
Because Romans 5.8 says that Christ died for us while we were still yet sinners. When we were hostile toward him, then he died for us. We're so weird, at least I'm so weird. You know, I find that my sin, things that I struggle with, my sin looks so much worse on other people. Aren't we that way? I do it, and I'm like, not so bad. Forgiven. (laughs) My sin looks so much worse on other people. I have the hardest time forgiving people for that which I'm most guilty of. And that is totally contrary to the gospel. The gospel is that because we have been forgiven, and our identity is in Christ, and there's no relational risk because we're secure in Him, we are free to forgive as He forgave. And this brings such freedom to life when you release people. Not because they deserve it, but because of who Christ is. Jesus gave the parable of the unmerciful servant because Peter came to him and said, Hey, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? The Jewish norm was three. So he saw that and raised it one. How many times should I forgive? Up to seven times? Jesus said, dude, 70 times seven. And then he gave the parable of the unmerciful servant, that there was a slave who owed what would be the equivalent today of millions of dollars to his master, and he had no way of repaying it. And he said to the master, please forgive me the debt and have mercy on me. And the master forgave him. And then the slave, having been forgiven the debt, went and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him what would have been the equivalent of a couple hundred bucks today. He was just forgiven for millions. And he went and found a guy that owed him a couple hundred bucks and he grabbed him by the neck and he shook him and said, repay me. And he said, I can't repay you. He used the exact same words that the guy had used previously. Have mercy on me. Forgive me the debt. And he said, no, I'll throw you in prison until you pay every last cent. I want us to hear what Jesus said about this. He said, the Lord would say to that slave, the master of the slave, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And Jesus said, And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall, look at what Jesus says, So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Uh, I don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good. (laughs) I'm not going to try to explain it away. I'm just going to let the words of Jesus be the words of Jesus, and it doesn't sound good for the way we've been. Relational holiness practices forgiveness, and then finally, it puts on love which our text says is a perfect bond of unity. And the reasoning is the same. Why do we love? Because we've been loved. Because we are beloved. We love because we've first been loved. And how do we love? Same as forgiveness. We love in the way we've been loved by Jesus. The standard, the model, is a cross. 
It's a self-sacrificial love. It's not loving those who are lovable. That's meaningless. It's not loving those who love us. It's doing what Christ did, loving the unlovable, the unattractive, the cantankerous, the difficult to get along with. And it's not just loving them like, love you. Love ya. When anyone says ya, they don't actually mean it. Love ya. If they say, I love you, they might mean it. Love ya. Jesus didn't say, love ya. He died for us. The model for our relational holiness is self-sacrificial love. The motivation, we love others because we've been loved. The way that we love is the way that we've been loved. And then hopefully what happens then is that we earn the title Christian. We then earn it in the world. It's not self-claimed. It's assigned because we've been observed and judged to be like Jesus. Action point time. This is your part of the sermon. What are you going to do? Who do you need to forgive? It could have been 30 years ago. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to start to love in a self-sacrificial way? Who is it that God has allowed to be within your sphere of influence that needs to experience some compassion, some kindness, some patience, some mercy? Who is it that you need to approach humbly? You know that most non-Christians think that Christians are arrogant, that we walk with a self-confident swagger which is unchristlike. Action point time. Who do you need to forgive, love, humble yourself before? Be compassionate toward. And then how are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? The last verse said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The only way that we do this is Christ in us. It's a supernatural call. It's above and beyond our own ability. This requires that we connect with Christ, abide in Christ, cling to Christ, draw our life from Christ, and let Christ's life flow through us. That is a requirement. That's the only way that we do it, by the person of Christ in us and the power of the Holy Spirit upon us. So we're going to go into a time of response. You do what you need to do. The prayer team will be up here you're really struggling with some of this stuff, you're so bound up in bitterness and unforgiveness and you and your whole family have been defiled by it, come up and let the prayer team lay hands on you and pray for you. Come and get on your face and repent. Come and take communion to be reminded of what Christ did that you might be free to love people that way. And right now I'm going to pray that for all those that want it, the power of the person of the Holy Spirit will come upon us to live it. If you want the Holy Spirit, just lift your hands in a show of receiving. Lord, you know what we have need of this morning. You know where we are lacking. You know where we lack the wherewithal and the power in and of ourselves to be like Jesus. Thank you that you never called us to do it by ourselves. And so we're asking now the Holy Spirit, you would fill us. Just as you did on the day of Pentecost, that you would come upon the church, that we would receive power to be your witnesses. And just as you did every time they had need in a relational situation, you filled them afresh. Lord, fill us afresh. 
We're aware of our failures, but you're gentle in the face of great failures. Thank you, Lord. Be gentle with us, but be powerful upon us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and fill us with the power of who Jesus is. We might be freed to live in relational holiness. Let's seek the Lord now. Don't disengage. Engage more deeply. Let's press in. Let him work in us. Thank mm-hmm. you.